John is actually, um, you're new to University of St. Thomas. How long have you been at University of St. Thomas? June. June. So we're so glad to have you. You're the director of one of the MA programs at, um, at University of St. Thomas, studied in Oxford. Um, and so we're grateful to have him. I'm going to let him introduce himself a little bit more fully to you, but he's going to speak to us tonight about God's revelation to us, divine revelation, and how the Catholic Church sees that. So please help me welcome Dr. John Kerwin. Mary, there was never any doubt. Google Maps is never wrong. <laughs> 7.15 it said, and 7.17 I pulled into the parking lot. Woo! I had to help my wife get, get dinner on the table. Um, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, I, uh, as, as, uh, as Mary said, my name is John Kerwin, and I'm brand new to Houston. I, I'm uh, the, uh, a professor of uh, theology and director of the MA program in theology, the, all, the brand new Master's in Theology program at University of St. Thomas. Formerly it was at the seminary, and now it's been revamped. It's been brought out to the university, and it's been revamped. And it's, so it's substantially new, and it's much more in line with what a, a, a standard uh, Master's in Theology would be. Before this, I, was, I came out with my wife and five kids. We, we, we drove out, and we drove the minivan out in June. Thanks so much. And uh, we were, I was a professor of theology at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley. Right? Silicon Valley is the most powerful place in the world now, and really nobody really knows exactly where it is. Where, anybody know exactly where Silicon Valley is? Don't say San Francisco. It's not San Francisco. Yeah. It's not San Jose. It's... Anybody know? It, where's Palo Alto though? Yeah, exactly. It used to be like 35 minutes south of San Francisco. Now, it's, So if, if San Francisco, the whole Bay Area is kind of like a weird U, San Francisco is the, the thumbnail, and then San Jose is down here, and Oakland is up here, the fingernail. And this is all uh, Silicon Valley. So there's your useless trivia for the, for the day. But interestingly enough, uh, Palo Alto, uh, Silicon Valley has one of the top five microclimates in the country. So it's like, you know, partly sunny and 70 degrees most of the year. And then, you know, you get a few months where it's colder. So that's like the only redeeming thing. We're right next to Facebook and Google and it's all right there. Anyway, on to more important things. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the invite, Mary. And uh, it's really a pleasure. Um, I'll just mention this at the end as well, but uh, you know, we, this brand new MA in theology that we have, we have a wonderful teaching faculty here, and uh, one of the unique things about this Master's in Theology is that it really combines both dogmatics and historical theology, and this is really rare. I mean, I think it might be the only MA program that really does this. So you go through the Church Fathers, you go through Aquinas and the Medievals, you go through modern, modern theology, and Vatican II, that's what I specialize in. And then you'll also do your standard dogmatics courses. Uh, you can do them all at night. They're geared for working people. But uh, it's really a, a fantastic education. We have our first cohort of about 13 people. They're a, a, a wonderful, fun bunch. We, we meet on Thursday nights, and uh, it's really going well. So if, you, if you're interested at all, I have some cards up here. You can feel free to give me a call or, or send me an email. If you like, if you're interested at all in, in uh, deepening your faith even more than I'm sure what you're getting here, which is substantial. Um, okay, revelation, revelation, and, and uh, the its importance. So I uh, I know in in your your lessons for today deal with catechisms, roughly pages 17 to, to 37, and. Uh, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to broadly keep to, and, and I also understand that you finished up scripture, salvation history, as well as the relationship between philosophy and theology. And that's, that's wonderful because we're going to build on both of those topics today. Hopefully we, there won't be any repetition. Hopefully we can expand on all this. 
So, um, Revelation, I'm going br to broadly stick to the, 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 the movement and flow, the scope and sequence of the catechism, but I'm also going to try to <clears throat> add a little bit of extra so we're not just going over the text and, and try to fill it out a little bit as well. So, well, why Revelation? I mean, Revelation theology, okay, it sounds intriguing when we think of, we think of the scriptures, we think of some of these particularly Catholic notions of tradition and the magisterium. But we need to, let's kind of back up and take a bird's eye view. Because Revelation theology really gets to the very center of the debate, sometimes tension, sometimes dialogue between the church and the modern world. Absolute, it's absolutely at the center of, of the debate. And this is why Revelation theology has been one of the most contested and most discussed areas of theology for 200 years, 250 years to be exact. Why? Because theology is a hierarchy, right? We think of, we think of theology, you have these, these general terms of, you know, you both Revelation and the Bible, and you think of this ecclesiology, right? It's the theology of the church. Well, we think of the liturgy. People have different varying ideas about the liturgy and whether it's received or whether it's given. Sacramental theology. There's all of these various various disciplines or subdisciplines of theology. But what Revelation theology? We 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 need to view all these as not just kind of a, a disorganized or aggregate, but rather it's it's an organism. Let's say a tree, and Revelation theology stands at the base of the tree. Wherever your revelation theology goes, that's where everything else is going to go. Your ecclesiology, your sacramental theology, your moral theology. Now, why is revelation theology, why is it just so, 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 so crucial, so pivotal? Why has it been at the center of the church's engagement with, with the modern world? Well, the first thing is, is revelation theology it presupposes anthropology, right? Anthropology, the philosophy of the human person. So it presupposes this. So in anthropology, to, to stretch the analogy out, that'll certainly break down soon, but it'll be useful for the time being. If anthropology is the roots of the tree, and, and fundamental revelation theology is gonna be the trunk, and then we have various branches going out. So, uh, why is anthropology? Well, anthropology, the philosophy of the human person. So what you can say about the human person, what the human person is oriented towards, what the, human per what, what the ends of the human person are, what the limits of the human person are, what, what, what's the range of human knowing, right? These are the questions, because wherever you limit or bracket the human person's knowing, you're gonna limit or bracket what God can say to the human person. Because revelation, right, coming from the, from the Latin revelare, to reveal, to make known. Well, okay, to make known. Well, now precisely this question, well, what is the human person capable of knowing? You see, this is, this is why revelation theology has been so important. And uh, it's, it's revelation theology as Catholics, and especially as Catholics that we want to be faithful to the, to the mind of the church, to the tradition of the church. Revelation theology is, it's, it's the hill that we need to die on in terms of, and there's, there's various conceptions of, of where we can go with it. And we don't all have to have the exact same revelation theology, but there needs to be certain parameters, right? It needs to be the Mount Suribachi. Think of the Marines in World War II with the American flag on Iwo Jima. It needs to be the Mount Suribachi where we're, we're going to claim this. Why? Well, all right, let's go back now to 17, to the 1770s when our, our country was being founded. At, simultaneously, during those same decades, uh, Europe was undergoing a, a, the four great revolutions, we might call them, okay? There was a philosophical revolution, a political revolution, a historical revolution, and an economic revolution. Okay? Now you're thinking, wait a second. We're really off, We're really off the radar now. But stay with me now. Okay, well, what does the, what does the philosophical revolution do? Well, in 1786, Immanuel Kant releases the second edition of this earth-shattering, what he calls Copernican revolution 
in, 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 and it's really the birth of, 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 of modern philosophy, late modern philosophy, right? And Immanuel Kant tried to save philosophy from the even more destructive work of David Hume. But Immanuel Kant basically comes up with this very sophisticated notion that reality is not received. Reality, we're not, re, we're not all participating in this same noble reality in terms of, of sensible material substances. All, we're all kind of viewing this ordered and exquisite, this beautiful, knowable cosmos. And from this cosmos, we, we can deduce important things like the, like the existence of God or uh, what nature, uh, what, what, what we can know about morality from nature, right? Immanuel Kant says, well, what we're doing is we're basically just receiving all of this chaotic sense data, like, like rain on a, you know, on a winter night. And we're receiving this chaotic sense data that ultimately we can never really make any sense of, except what, what we have these metaphysical categories that process and shift these things according to our own innate uh, categories of, of time and space and substance and causality, right? So basically we're, we're creating, we're recreating reality in here, okay? And then they're gonna build on this. So I mean, what, 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 are the, what are the implications of this for religion? So no longer the traditional proofs for God, for the existence of God are acceptable. No longer is the idea of dogma acceptable, right? Dogma, right, these are these these immutable principles that, that stand forever, like the Nicene Creed, where we can state these, these historical realities that are, are living and binding forever, they're absolute truths, right? All of this is gone. So he's gonna try to, well, and what do you do with, with religion? He's gonna try to embed it in morality. Well, we've got this moral impulse, and through this moral impulse, maybe we can get to some kind of proof of God, and beyond that, we can't know anything, right? Schleiermacher is gonna is the, the father of liberal Protestant theology. Well then, well what's the scriptures or what are the scriptures for? Well, they're they're ultimately doctrines about having a great dependence on God, a feeling, and it's an experience, right? So this is the way this is where the philosophical revolution is gonna, gonna take over. The political revolution obviously is, is happens the French Revolution, 1789. We have a historical revolution where everything, this is married to the philosophical revolution where suddenly everything has to be viewed and explained historically. Right? Everything has to be, we're, we're giving up on the idealized world of absolute truth. Right? We're, we're, we're here with contingent historical truth. Right? That's not absolute. And then the economic revolution, which is, of course, uh, the, the rise of industry in England the rise of the factories and the emptying out of the agrarian classes. So we've got this tremendous, we have this, this tremendous um, shakeup in European life as, as America is just expanding. And so, uh, well, this, this really shakes European Protestantism to the core. And we go, uh, the historical revolution suddenly, well, we've got to treat the Bible. The Bible suddenly has to be treated as simply every other historical story. So you don't give the Bible a free pass by just assuming that the supernatural and that the miraculous and that uh, the resurrection stories, that somehow these are, are, are admissible if we're not going to give the Greek, Greek literature, and Egyptian literature, Roman literature the same credit. No, the Bible gets, we're going to flatten it out, we're going to treat it like a historical document, we're just going to assume that all of these the miraculous and the supernatural is not true because modern philosophy says, remember, that anything that can't be proven in a laboratory-style experiment is inadmissible. That's the whole principle of Wiesenschaft, right? If you can't prove it scientifically, it doesn't get admitted. Okay, so, we're, so there we are. So suddenly the scriptures have been historicized, uh, they've been the, the proof of the existence of God has been has been philosophized away. We are left simply with a book that gives us some ethical teachings. Jesus was in. Once we strip away the, the miracle stories and the resurrection, we need to get to the true Jesus. Well, he's a wandering preacher. He's a, a virtuous guide, and the kingdom of heaven is you know some kind of earthly political system that we need to strive after. So, what does the church do? Well, the church 
The church stutters a little bit in, in facing down this new threat, but then really, in, in the, the pontificates of Pius IX, Leo XIII, and then Pius X, the church is going to take a pretty strident, strident stance against this. Vatican I is going to convene in, in 1870. And uh, Vatican I basically is a, it's, it's a full rebuke of modernity. It's a full rebuke of modern philosophy. And most famously, it, it asserts, Vatican II does two really famous things that people remember. It, uh, it defines papal infallibility when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra from the chair. The chair appears, only happened twice, right? But then also, it's this dogmatic reaffirmation of the validity of natural theology. And this is a really huge, huge deal. And, and here's what, uh, here is what um, Vatican I says. The same Holy Mother Church holds and teaches that God, the source and end of all things, can be known with certainty from the consideration of created things by the natural power of human reason. Let me read that again. The same Holy Mother Church holds and teaches that God, the source and end of all things, can be known with certainty from the consideration of created things. So right there, the church... Uh, really defines this 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 uh, this philosophy that no the church is not going to buy into this notion that the human knowing is limited it's bracketed that somehow we're going to take a gamble that we can't really know any of this thing any of this stuff and we can't participate in the beauty and the order of the cosmos and and all share in these principles that govern the cosmos the causation and the principle of non-contradiction Right? Something can't be both true and not true at the same time. All of these principles that reaffirm this absolute belief in truth. And we can all share in the fact that if we talk about a dog that's under a tree outside, we can all share in this reality that there is a dog, a substance, a, a, a canine underneath a tree. We're all participating in that. Right? And so... All right, nine years later, the church makes this reaffirmation. So this is kind of an, an air horn in your face to the modern world, you know? Right? And, uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the hierarchical church, this notion that, that there's this church that was, that was divinely instituted by God and it's governed by God. And the, the, the leader of this church, when he, when he speaks in the name of, of the founder of the first pope, St. Peter, that he's infallible, right? I mean, this is even more of an offense to modernity. This is like the other airborne in your face, right? But these are the two, these were, this was the 19th century response to uh, the, the challenges of modernity, is reaffirming the human being's ability to have a full range of metaphysical knowledge. That's how John Paul II calls it, right? So nine years later, Pope Leo then releases this encyclical called Eternity Patris, where he attempts to reestablish uh, the, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas as somehow some kind of a bulwark to, to really support this, this definition that Vatican I gave the church. And so Aquinas has, you know, you might remember Aquinas if you were studied him a little bit in your Catholic school days, you've heard about him. He has this kind of robust notion of human knowing where you know, we receive reality, and from reality, we can know the cosmos, and from knowing the cosmos, we can know that God exists, and that we can know that God is intelligent, and is all good, and all powerful, right? And, and so, he, he, now, Aquinas says, and the church says that, look, we're not saying that everybody can know this, or that it's easy to know this philosophically, just with human reason alone. Just simply that it is possible for human beings to know God and to know about God's power and his intelligence. Okay? And so there's going to be a lot of debates about exactly what Aquinas means about this or about that, or how Aquinas would be understood in the modern in the modern world. But these are these two milestones, really, that are going to, that the church is going to wreck to attempt to safeguard revelation. Right? Because uh, what is revelation? Right, is this whole idea of God speaking to us traditionally. Okay? And so if, if, if otherwise, if we let go of these principles, these philosophical principles, then what we're going to end up with is religion as vague 
moral sentiment or religion merely as political praxis or, uh, I mean, on and on. Right? So let me just kind of sketch out how this, how this plays out. Right? If you have, let's just say, a, an anthropology that is based on uh, a post-Kantian idea that you know, all we can, you know, we can ex our experiences are what we need to ground religion on because any kind of absolute knowing is impossible. And so religious knowledge is simply a reflection of our experiential state, right? So if you have an anthropology that can only, that can only be grounded on spiritual experience, so all we can do is feel God's presence, feel God's you know, fatherly closeness, feel a dependence on God. And we can't really know absolute truth. So any kind of dogma or anything we get from the scriptures, I mean, the scriptures are just simply the spiritual reflections of a community 2,000 years ago. And then the church's teachings and dogma will simply be modern experiences on our, on, on our relationship with God, reflecting on spiritual experiences 2,000 years ago, right? And so your, your, your church is going to be built along this. So your spiritual experience is going to take this front center hierarchy is going to be simply the, the temporal manifestation of a certain experience of a certain given time. Morality can change. Dogma can change, and it should change, right? Because everything is experientially grounded, including the liturgy. Let's take another example. Uh, Marx, right, who's building on the philosophy of Hegel, where, you know, we have this, this, this progress of, of history. Marx isn't interested in absolute truth. There's a certain political egalitarianism that's going to be the end of history, this convergence of the absolute and the arc of history, right? So if you have a, 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 a Marxist anthropology, Okay, we're not Marxist anthropology is not dealing with absolute truth. That's a waste of time. That's the opium, remember the, the, the opium of the masses, right? And so you're going to have a you're going to you're going to read the scriptures fundamentally as a political struggle for liberation. That's what you can know, and that's how you can know that, right? And then the church is going to be built around that kind of ethos. So this is where these various revelation theologies end up. This is why the church has stood so firmly reasserting that the, what John Paul II calls the full range of metaphysical knowledge. That we can know the world, we can know the beauty of the world, we can know the existence of God, and motion, and cause, contingency, and beauty, and order. We can know these things and we can affirm them. And on this foundation then of this ability to speak truth, we have conceptions in our mind and we can formulate propositions and you can receive my proposition and then you can you can correlate that to a concept that you have and therefore we can share in the language we can share in truth linguistically this is why the church of John Paul II especially in, in recent years really dug in on this because if we lose that we lose scripture and we lose scripture's ability to really communicate absolute truth to us okay so um, Attorney Patras, there's the, there's the modern world. Now, um, so the, the, the claim then is, is that human beings then, with this, with this conception of what we approach, we approach, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, as an aside, right? I mean, this is, this, this idea of reality as received rather than reality as created, right? This is considered, most philosophy departments, secular philosophy departments, it's considered what they would call, it's not even philosophy. This idea that, you know, you can know the world and do classical metaphysics. It's, it's, they don't even consider philosophy. It's considered what they call folk psychology myth, right? I mean, common sense is, is simply mythology, right? And, and the great rebuttal to this was the famous Dr. Johnson when he, upon hearing about Kantian philosophy and all this, you know, he goes up and kicks the rock, says, there, I refute you. Now this idea that, look, we all just saw the rock. We all saw me kick it. And we all saw the rock fly across the ground. Like, don't tell us. We're not experiencing reality. But it's this, it's this anthropology that allows us then to pick up the scriptures and to, to see God's truth communicated to us today. Right? 
you can read where this, where this is really underscored in a, in a really beautiful and poignant way is the encyclical Fides et Ratio, John Paul's encyclical in, in uh, 1998, I think. And John Paul, this is Faith and Reason, and John Paul lays out this magnificent tour de force, really like claiming, look, if you don't have a philosophy that can make contact with reality through basic principles, then you don't have a philosophy. And everything in our faith depends on this. There's a lot of different philosophies, Christian philosophies that are viable, but in the end, they all have to have this. And this allows us to, uh, to, to share in the scriptures together. So then, what the catechism does is, after the catechism kind of lays out this in these first, in these first pages for your, for your lesson, it lays out the, the, uh, the ability of, to know that human beings can know God. We have the desire of our heart is written uh, the desire for God is written on the human heart. Okay, I mean the, the greatest the greatest theological debate of the 20th century basically took place over that over over that declaration. The desire for God is written on the human heart. Fascinating subject for another day. If you enter the, the MA program at UST, you'll learn all about it. But the uh, so this um, this this whole notion that you know we are created for God. John Paul lays all of this out, and so then we open the scriptures, and what do we find? How do we find God communicating? Well, God communicates right in this in this with this manner of progressive pedagogy, where where uh, where God progressively unfolds His Word, and God progressively uh, teaches. Uh, human beings, who he is, how he wants them to worship him, what he requires of them morally, and then exactly how the structure of his institution will be arranged. Okay, we see these four dimensions of revelation. Uh, of we see these four dimensions unpacked slowly in, especially the first, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible where God begins speaking to humanity. And again, we see God reveals who He is, what He requires of us, how we are called to worship Him, and the, how the institution will be structured. Okay? And so we even think of, um, we think of Abraham. God's calling to Abraham. God calls Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees. God rece Abraham receives the word of the Lord. Right? And so whenever the word of the Lord happens, in, especially in the Pentateuch, big things are usually accompanying it. There's usually some kind of miraculous sign. right? Because as Vatican II says, Dei Verbum, the document on revolution, revelation, that, uh, that God's word is accompanied with deeds. His, his revelation is one of both action in history and communication of saving truths. Right? And so... Why does God communicate to, to humanity? Well, God communicates to humanity because, right, the New Testament says that God wills that all men be saved. That there's this supernatural truth. There is this, okay, we can have this knowledge of God through the natural order if we're really good at philosophy and we have the time to do it, right, and we're really, we're really bright and, and all of this, but yet we still only have a, a, a natural knowledge. And so revelation provides us a supernatural knowledge. It provides us this ability to know things that we could not have otherwise known, but yet that are in accord with reason. Okay? And so we have Abraham, we have Moses. I mean, the, the word of the Lord speaks decisively and irrevocably at Sinai. And here, the word of the Lord is always bound up with this, with the notion, with the ancient concept of covenant. Right? And covenant, the idea of covenant, I mean, what's extraordinary about this is so that God reveals who he is and what he wants of us and how we're supposed to worship and how he wants his people arranged. All this happens through covenant. And uh, the idea of covenant is fascinating because this was, a common, this was a common cultural concept in the ancient Near East, the idea of covenant. And what a covenant was, was it turned you in, it wasn't simply a promise, it wasn't simply an agreement, it turned you in to family. It was a family bond. It was a family bond and, and blessings and curses were called down on the keeping or the breaking of this covenant relationship. But what's fascinating is that we, so we see this throughout the ancient Near East, but 
Only one people actually posits that there's a covenant between God and humanity. Right? I mean, never, no, no other religious system in the ancient Near East made this claim that there was a covenant where God stooped down. Right? Because the, the other, I mean, this is the genius of Genesis. You know, we don't have to, I mean, to, to even attempt the, the fundamentalist reading that somehow there's seven literal days and, and that, you know, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark and, you know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis even attempt a fundamentalist reading? Not only is it pretty tough apologetically, but it actually misses the big picture, right? Is that all of these other, all of these other religions, all of these other nations are they're imbued with a political religious system that's built on a system of usually warring gods and demigods who are basically uh, exalted or more powerful humans, right? And in the revelation of Genesis, there's no, there's no creation narrative where, you know, there's, there's God, uh, uh, humans are created out of the blood of a slain God, like in, the ancient, in one of the tribes of the ancient Near East, or that there was a galactic cosmic battle that birthed humanity. I mean, there was, it was completely different. God is simply by himself, creating. I mean, this is remarkable. This is a Copernican revolution in terms of, you know, uh, religious anthropology. Suddenly, there's, there's no God who's competing. It's, he's simply creating ex nihilo and declaring that it's good. Right? But then, out of, the, out, of the, out of the abundance of his own omnipotence, he creates humanity. And so right away, we're introduced like, wait a second, this is a completely different narrative. This is like nothing else that's going on in the ancient world. This is a God who doesn't compete. He's a God who's never the problem. He's a God who's all-powerful, and he's all-loving, and he's good. And this, is, this, is, this, this, this fundamental uh, point of, of departure for, for Judeo-Christian revolution is absolutely revolutionary. Right? And it's, as soon as we, the, in Genesis 3, right, the sin happens the, the, through, through eating of the, 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 the tree of knowledge, Right? Then immediately, what's the, the very next thing that happens is Cain and Abel are going out to build two altars. Right? And so right away, Revelation, I mean, it's remarkable because this, the, the, whole, the whole notion, this famous, this famous theologian named Louis Bouillet wrote a book on this. It's absolutely fascinating. You know, just the religious anthropology, how all over the world in these ancient cultures and how it would have no contact with one another and couldn't have any had any contact with them. What are they all doing? They're all building altars. Right? But it's and, and so here we have this, this revolutionary God who doesn't compete and he's all powerful and he's never the problem. And so we have humanity finally in, in, embarking on true worship, worship of the true God, through raising the gifts onto the altar. One is accepted, one's not. And this is going to essentially lay the, the, the foundation for the biblical narrative of the, 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 the journey of the just, the journey of the unjust. And even God's covenant is when, when the unjust, when the just, even when the just fall, and they do, the word of the Lord restores. The word of the Lord punishes, and the word of the Lord restores. So the word of the Lord comes forth especially strong at Mount Sinai, where the word of the Lord literally is the Decalogue. Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord, the Israelites, as Joseph Ratzinger makes beautifully clear, the Israelites leave Egypt. Why? Not, although I'm sure they wanted uh, political freedom, it wasn't. Why did the Israelites leave Egypt? Anybody know? Want to take a guess? So they can worship. And they don't even know how they're going to worship. They don't, know, they, don't, they don't know how it's all going to go out. They don't even know where they're going to go worship. But God has called them to go worship out in the desert. The word of the Lord. And so revelation then, so suddenly the covenant that we see even in the Garden of Eden, right? The covenant was established with, with Adam. Uh, the, the verbs that, that are the Hebrew verbs that are used for Adam's work in the garden are the exact verbs that are used to describe how Levites work in the temple, right? So the covenant began with, with Adam. It was ratified with Noah, which was simply a, a recreation. Earth comes out of water. We have uh, green. We have greenery springing up. There's a, a, the, the God's spirit is over the water, 
right? It's Noah is, is, a, is, a, is a recreation of the creation story. And then we go on to Abraham is called. Isaac is his prefigurement of, of, of Jesus, the only son who called up to be sacrificed on a mountain, innocent. Right? Abraham passed the test. So it's in this way that slowly God is communicating. He is, he is, uh, he, he's, uh, he's revealing to God who he is. Right? We think of, we think of uh, the Exodus, the Exodus narrative, right? The ten plagues. We think, okay, ten plagues. God's just trying to punish, punish Abraham. But when, when the Israelites recounted the Exodus story again and again at Passover and around their kitchen, around their, their dinner tables, right? They weren't hearing what we hear. Why? Because each of the each of the, the plagues, each of the plagues brought down on Israel corresponded to an Egyptian deity, the bull god, the frog god of fertility, bugs, the, the covering of the of the sun. On and on it corresponded. So when they read this story, it was catechesis. This was exactly the narrative that they learned in Genesis. God is all-powerful. God is one God. He is alone. He's never the problem. Stop worshiping other gods. And this is the, this is the problem for them, is that they're not trusting in Revelation. Okay? And so throughout, throughout we, we have this progressive dimension that moves, that, that moves us along. Okay? And so when we get to the the fullness of Revelation, in the beginning was the Word, right? I mean, the, the, the prologue of John is the new creation. Jesus comes out of the water after being baptized. The Spirit hovers over the water. I mean, this is all, as, as the church father saw, this is a recreation. The, the baptism of, of Jesus was this, this fulfillment of Genesis. In the beginning were the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then right away, we have the baptism story. We have the water and the wine, the marriage covenant, which is the fulfillment of the original marriage covenant of, of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we have Christ as the fulfillment of revelation. right? And Christ then passes on to his apostles. And Christ founds the church, the new Israel, the new covenant we call. Right? It's the, the, the fulfilling covenant where the sacrifice of the cross Right? It's perpetuated. It's, it, and we share in it. We participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. And so Christ establishes this church. And it, which uh, the, the epistles tell us, you know, the pillar and foundation of truth is the church. Right? So this is Revelation. And he passes on these truths to his apostles. Right? And his apostles then carry this on. So Jesus gives and trusts his apostles with what? The deposit of faith. Right? The deposit of faith. And the apostles then, the only thing that Jesus ever writes down, right? The only thing that he's ever going to write is in the dirt at, to, uh, regarding the, the Pharisees' attempt to stone the, the, the woman caught in adultery. So what are his disciples going to do? His apostles after Pentecost. They're going to, they're going to uh, preach what Jesus has given them, and they're going to write down some of it, and they're going to pass on other things for other for their successors to write down, right? So right away we have this notion of a of a of an institutionally founded church that is the keeper of truth. It's the keeper of the deposit of the faith. Okay, and through this through this deposit of the faith, then. Right? The apostles go out and the apostles appoint successors. St. Peter goes to found the church of Antioch. And then when St. Peter moves on to Rome, he appoints the successor of Ignatius of Antioch. Right? And on and on and on. We read Paul's epistles especially. This idea of founding churches. And so in Ephesus, in the region of Ephesus, we have Irenaeus. We have Polycarp, who was the disciple of John. Irenaeus was the disciple of 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 Polycarp, and so there was this living memory of the apostles, and there was this living notion that the bishops were the successors of the apostles, and wherever the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church, to quote Ignatius of Antioch, right? And so we have these, these two modes of revelation. There's one source of revelation from Christ, 
but then we have scripture and tradition. And scripture, obviously, is those truths that are written down. Scripture, tradition, capital T, are those, are those truths that are passed down and written down by others. Okay? So, but it's always within the confines of an authoritative church. All right, so let me give you an example. I mean, this is theoretical. How does this work? Okay? So, all right, Catholics, we come together with this, uh, despite what, you know, the depressing, the, the depressing results of various pew polls that, you know, kind of uh, challenge whether or not Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, right? We still affirm this. This is still a, a central article of faith, right? That the, this notion of transubstantiation, right? Okay, so it's in the scriptures. We, we turn to John 6, right? John 6, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't eat my flesh and don't drink my blood, you have no life within you. The people are following Jesus. They say, come on, you can't be serious. And every time they say you can't be serious, he ratchets it up a notch. Oh yeah, you must, you know, he who doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life. And on and on until they all disappear except for the 12 apostles. Well, and then he looks at the 12 apostles and says, hey, come on, you know, you guys are going to leave too, right? No, he doesn't say that. He says, are you guys going to leave also? This is, this is, I mean, he would have been fundamentally morally obligated as a teacher to clear up a misconception if he was only speaking symbolically, right? A year later, he celebrates the Last Supper, what we call the Passover meal, the Last Supper, right? And then the next day, he's crucified as the lambs being, are being slain in the temple, the bleeding of the lambs, right? Okay, well, it's clear to us, but if it's that clear, how come, you know, the Protestants are, don't really hang on to this? You have a couple, some, some, some Anglicans will have a notion of consubstantiality, right? Some, some kind of Episcopalian, a few Anglicans will sign on to this, but 90% of them don't, and they're reading the same scripture. So, well, what's the difference? Well, because scripture alone is not enough for Catholics, right? Scripture and tradition. So, let's go back to St. Peter's disciple, St. Ignatius of Antioch, he dies about 110, 110, you know, in the persecutions. He's eaten by lions in the Colosseum. And on his way in chains from Antioch, he stops in every port. He stops in, in seven different ports, and he writes letters to the various churches, right? And he's, in, 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 and he's revered, because this is St. Peter's successor. This guy knew Paul. This guy knew John. This guy knew everyone. This guy, this guy was like ground zero. He, this guy is, is, is the, you know, a senior apostle, right? Uh, this, uh, and, and so uh, he's a, a senior bishop. And he's writing, you can read all these letters. They're, they're, they're written in, uh, Penguin even has a nice little handy edition. When I taught patristics at the seminary, I mean, this was the stuff they loved because it's so fresh. It's like, wait, we've got Pink Peter's disciple writing letters? We've got his letters to the church problem? Yeah, we do. And what does he say? He says, you know, uh, do nothing without the bishop. Wherever the bishop is, there's the Catholic Church. If anyone says that the body and blood, that, that the bread and the wine are not truly the body and the blood, cast them out of the assembly, never celebrate the Eucharist without the bishop so that it may be valid. I mean, this is remarkable, right? St. Peter's disciple in 100 AD. John dies in, what, 90? So he knows, he's meeting Polycarp, comes down, John's disciple comes down to the docks to say goodbye to him. He's on his way to Rome, and he, he's, you know, praying for a martyrdom because he wants to leave the world, right? So here's tradition, here's tradition, these truths that are handed on, right? And through this ministry of the church authority and this apostolic succession then, right, we see this teaching authority of the church, which we call today the Latin, right? The magisterium. So then, ultimately, then, it's the magisterium, which is this living tradition, this living element of tradition, a living element of tradition. The magisterium, then, can weigh in and authoritatively interpret the Word of God, right? And so, then, from the, from the principles of Scripture, we have this concept of dogma. Dogma, which is these immutable truths. They, they might be, be presented explicitly in Scripture, or they might just be implicitly reduced, uh, deduced. 
It might be implicitly reduced, right? So one of the first great controversies of the church, right? the Arians who say, well, no, Jesus was created. It's a little bit more rational. Jesus was created. He was a creature. He was the firstborn. Fine, all of this. But he was... So the bishops meet. They meet two times to, to figure this out. Two councils, 325 and 381. Right? And what do they use? Well, what they end up coming up with is the same exact thing we say after the, the homily every Sunday. Right? This is all now part of, of dogma. This is the living witness, the authoritative pronouncements of the living church under the, uh, the uh, successors of the apostles. Right? And so uh, they're interpreting scripture. And, and one, of the, one of the big debates at, during those councils was this, um, the, the, the use of the word consubstantial, right? Consubstantial to determine this with this one, this oneness, but threeness. This one shia, one substance, but three hypostases, three persons. Well, how do you articulate this? Well, they need to bring in a philosophical term. Well, that was a problem for some, because it's not biblical. No, the church has decided that this expresses the biblical truth better than any other word. Right? So we have this, this notion of dogma, authoritative dogma. Dogma is, 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 is you know, these are the, the uh, immutable, absolute principles of the faith. Right? This is the essentials of the faith. So now we're, we're, we're called to the, and so the, uh, this brings the question, talking about the church fathers wrestling with scripture. You read all the writings of the church fathers during these first centuries. I mean, a lot of times they're arguing about scripture. This is what their, their, the give and take is about, right? And one of, my, one of my favorite passages, in one of my favorite early writings, is this guy named Origen. And Origen is in Alexandria, which was the intellectual center of the Mediterranean at that time. <clears throat> and in 225 AD, so all right, the last apostle's been dead now for over 100 years, okay? We have this authoritative church, right? But there's no councils, there's no creeds, Right? There's, no, there's no canon of, of 27 books and then the Old Testament books and the Bible and under your arm and you know, that you're going to read. There's, there's none of this. Right? And so what do we find Origen says is happening in 225 AD? He writes this, this book, this work called De Principis, or On First Principles. And for Origen, he basically says at the end of the introduction, he's like, listen, uh, we need to hold fast to the tradition of the apostles. We need to hold fast to what the church knows the apostles have handed on because there's too many heresies that are starting. And we need, we need to do good theology. We need to do theology. We need to do scientific deduction. Right? We need to, uh, and then we need a rule of the faith. We, we have to have some kind of rule, like a creed. Okay? And he's laying out exactly what the church needs 100 years before they're going to get it at the Council of, uh, at the, the, the Council of 325. 325, 381, Constantinople, and Nicaea, right? And so he's laying all this out, and he's saying, look, we need to do theology. And here's how the function of theology works, is that the theologians look at the Word of God, explore the Word of God, and assist the teaching church with ironing out these issues. And then the teaching church gathers together, building on the work of the theologians, then, and then making dogmatic or doctrinal a lesser level of dogma. There's various levels of doc doctrinal pronouncements. And so there's this intimate interplay between theology and the Word of God and the authority of the church. And so your catechism section then uh, begins with, uh, the catechism section this week ends with uh, the formation of the canon and the census of Scripture. And the formation of the canon, as I just said, I mean, this is a great example of how the authoritative church works. And this is a, a problem that really vexes uh, some various Protestants because, um, I mean, there was, there was never in the early, in the early church, they, they, all right, they would have lists of, oh, these are the authentic gospels and these are the inauthentic gospels. And, but, but there was never this idea like, all right, we're going to you know, compile all these 27 writings and have a New Testament. How does this come about? Just about, you know, every other, every, almost every good thing in the church comes about because of some problem or crisis they're having. And so what's the problem? Well, these non-authentic these non writings are being read at mass. And so they've been debating this for a while, and they've got various lists, but then finally, in the end of the 300s, Pope Damasus, 
you know, has St. Dustin and the North African bishops convene a council and said, look, come up with an authoritative list. All right, we've got the tradition of what's authoritative, but there was these disputed writings, the Shemkar Burmas and the, the Epistle of Barnabas and things like this. And so they do. They send it back, and then they send it back to the Pope for the Pope to approve it, and then eventually does. And then it's going to be finalized, not even until the Council of Trent, because of controversies over the canon with the process. So this is again, but why, how did the church, how did the church know which were the writings and which weren't were the writings of the apostles? Because it had been handed on through bishops. The living church had safeguarded this truth. Right? And then you're an apostle. So we have the scriptures then, the New Testament, but then this, this section in, in the catechism, then it concludes with, well, how do we read scripture? Right? Because when we try to do the all literal the, 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 uh, to read it as a scientific textbook, right, it can be problems. So it lays out these principles for reading. Look, that there's a literal sense, right? But there's also a moral sense. There's a spiritual sense. There's four senses, and we'll go through them. There, you read them for your selection. But there's a time to read it spiritually, right? And the literal sense supports the spiritual narrative sometimes, okay? And, and so we don't, you know, the seven days of creation, seven is the number of covenant, right? The covenant of creation, the four rivers flowing out of what was probably conceived of a mountain in Eden, in Eden God's holy mountain, with Adam being the first and archetypal priest of the, of, the, of, the, of the original covenant. This is the spiritual reading of the church fathers, right? We don't need to worry about whether or not Noah could squeeze all the, the animals onto the ark, right? Because what the church fathers were concerned about primarily was that clearly this was a symbol of baptism and recreation, right? As St. Peter says, that you're saved through baptism, like, you know, in the ark, okay? So uh, I will, um, we can, we can uh, open this up for, uh, we have a few minutes for Q&A. If there's anything about Revelation, a lot, a lot of material, pretty wide-ranging. I tried to kind of stay to the catechism, but do some other things as well. So is there anything that you, any, any questions or comments or, you know, anything? My question. Yes. Looking at the poster over here, that divine revelation versus natural Yes. Sure. So natural revelation. Uh, repeat that question. Oh, oh so I, I was curious about that. Okay. Yeah. So he said, for those of the back, there's this natural revelation and divine revelation. So natural revelation also can be called uh, general revelation, and this is this idea that we can know the existence of God and things about God through the created order, through philosophy, right? What we talked about earlier. Natural revelation. Yes. Skeptics maybe early on, right? But this was a teaching of the church. So then in, in, in the context of what you're talking about, so Martin Luther held on to a, a modified version that it was still red, but also the body of Christ. It was kind of a via media, right? But then the more extreme Protestants like John Calvin, John Calvin and, and the it's called the Reformed tradition, they held that it was only symbolic, it was just red. And so uh, this is why Lutherans and, and, and then some Anglicans also kind of kept a modified both and attempt. But it was the Reformed tradition because America is, right, America, we think of the Protestants as not holding on to the real presence because it's not primarily Lutheran, right? I mean, some of the Lutherans came down to the Midwest, right? Some of the Anglicans are on the Episcopalians are up in New England, but basically it's a Reformed country. 
which means Puritan, Calvinistic, very much anti-sacramental, very much kind of anti-real presence. So it was like 15, 1500 during the Reformation that they split over this. I mean, at one point, like this guy's Wingley, who split over Luther split, and then Luther's Wingley split, and Calvin split, they all created these factions. So at one time, uh, Zwingli uh, then was the Swiss guy, and, and he was a he was a preacher, and he says, no, it's not the body of Christ, it's just bread. And so he goes up to dialogue with Luther, and Luther meets him, you know. Luther meets him when he arrives in town, and he's got like a big billboard or a standard board says, you know, like it's, it's not just bread. <laughs> you know? So yeah. So was it perhaps also for political purposes? Was it for political purposes? For what was the political purpose? Why did they, the people said. Even concerned about like cannibalism or something, you mean? No, but like. Just gay power, so to speak. You know, I'm going to. Why are they talking about Oh, say that. I was the Reformation in general about the political power? Or was the Eucharistic thing? No, the Reformation was. I mean, the Reformation was very much. And of course, we all have wonderful. Protestant friends. We're not, we're, we're, nonetheless, we're talking about historical truth here. Yeah, German princes wanted land, and then you know, uh, and then the, the the aristocracy of the English wanted one of the monastic land, very wealthy lands. So um, German princes. So by the, the, the Reformation occurs in like 1517. This is when Luther tacks up this thing in protest. By 1526, uh, the peasants are unhappy. There's civil unrest, and Luther's really at the whims of German princes by that point. And so there's huge, there's enormous political implications in all this. Yeah, Scott Holland's got a great book on this. He wrote with a guy named Benjamin Weicker, and it's it's a, it's a book on. If you're interested, it's not the easiest read, but it's it's interesting. It's called Historicizing the Bible, and it's all on basically how politics is behind a lot of uh, political theology. And he gets there's a chapter on the Reformation Luther, and he gets into a lot of this. It's, it's a fast, fascinating stuff. The political implications behind religious. Uh, Religious philosophy. Anybody else? Thank you. Good question. Uh, yes. So, um, if, if uh, a religious group does not believe that the Eucharist is the actual body and blood of Jesus, how do they uh, interpret the scripture? Very <laughs> it's Well, they just say it's symbolic. I mean, you know what, John Calvin, this guy, John Calvin. He, he wrote these four books called the Institutes, and this was like Calvin's doctrine. And he goes through, you know, the whole debate about what is is, you know, this is my body. And he goes through the longest, most, you know, uh, most, uh, you know, kind of numbing debate about exactly what is is and how is doesn't mean is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. We're gonna have a whole class on that. Episode. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, what is, what is, is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is, is, is. Yeah. yeah. I think there's another question. Right sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's a great question because basically, basically, this is a, a really fascinating question. Because so, when 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 was there this rupture between scripture and tradition, and when did this, the idea of sola scriptura emerge? So, Luther goes to Luther uh, starts this idea that we're so the Protestant Reformation, the principle and foundation of Protestant Reformation is this on, on justification, sola fide, that we're saying this is why our Protestant brothers and sisters and friends, just believe, just have faith, just trust in Jesus, say the sinner's prayer, and then, you know, so, but uh, just have faith. Don't do works. If you try to do works, you know, that's bad. So, basically, that was his central, and he, and he gets that doctrine uh, from misinterpreting, having his own scruples, and scrupulosity, and misinterpreting the first three chapters of Romans, separate talk, honestly. So then basically he gets called to this thing called the Dean of Worms, and he's going to debate this, some of the, the, the theologians who are accusing him of, of, of preaching a falsity, 
right? And so basically this, this theologian named Johann Eck corners him and shows him that his belief is contrary to the tradition of the church. So Luther then falls back and says, well, great, then forget about tradition. I stand on only the Bible. So basically he got cornered. And so Scola Scriptura simply was an escape hatch that he had to, you know, that he had to press when it was shown to him that his, that his beliefs contradict the tradition. Yeah. Despite 2 Thessalonians 2.15, to stand firm and hold fast to the tradition. Traditions. Right. <laughs> Back to what is is. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that's the interesting part, because there isn't anything in Scripture that actually supports that. So that's, yeah. Yeah. that's what's problematic. Well, thanks, John. We enjoyed your talk. I have, can I, can I leave some business cards up here? Sure. Yeah, sure. yeah, why don't you leave them right out on the table there and then people can pick them up. Great, feel, yeah, feel free to give me a call, give me an email if you want, if you'd like interested in the program. Great, thanks. Why don't you guys take a short break and my team will come up front and um, we'll everybody else just take a little straight.